0: on to today's show Hello and welcome to the Bigger than Us podcast. I'm your host Raj Daniels and today I'd like to welcome Dr. Laura Lamors to the show. Dr. Laura Lammers is the founder and CEO of Travertine Technologies Inc, a startup working to scale a new technology for carbon dioxide removal, and inorganic chemical upcycling. Dr. Lammers obtained a PhD in environmental geochemistry from the University of California, Berkeley, in 2012. Her expertise focuses on carbon mineralization and carbon cycling, as well as selective critical element extraction. Laura, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Laura, I'm delighted to have you to the show. Before we dig into travertine, I would like to ask you what it was like growing up as the daughter of environmentalists in Houston, the energy capital of the world.
1: Uh, it was it was definitely an interesting experience. So both my parents are um, they're physicians in their careers, but um, they were day to day just very focused on the environment, and kind of on the leading edge. So. My dad was one of the early adopters of hybrid cars and had a little solar panel that he bought at the hardware store. You would just put on top of the car to try to power the battery, which is pretty funny. <laughs> we got some funny looks from the neighbors, who were many of whom were in the, the oil and gas industry. But we had a lot of interesting conversations around the dinner table with neighbors, certainly around uh, uh, transitioning to, to gas at a time before we had uh, large scale uh, fracking in the U.S. And um, yeah, so it's, it's been an interesting uh part of the inspiration for my career path.
0: What kind of hybrid car did he own?
1: It was one of those tiny little Honda Insights and it was so light that I could actually push it down the street when I was a child.
0: That's pretty amazing <laughs> and and pretty leading edge for that time of, I mean, I'm guessing it was what, 90s?
1: That's right, yeah, and it was, um, well, I think it was maybe, yeah, it was 90s, certainly, and um, I think, yeah, it was one of the few hybrids around and it was heavily subsidized at that time, so it actually was a great deal. <laughs>
0: so financially astute also
1: (laughs) yeah i think so
0: and i think i heard you say in another interview growing up with your parents and their mindset gave you an environmental problem-solving ethos can you break that down for me
1: absolutely so the, uh, the the challenges that we're facing today are um are relatively um simple chemically to address right we're we're uh we're oxidizing carbon and burning fossil fuels we're oxidizing sulfur and generating sulfuric acid and uh, the products the wastes of these processes are um, contaminants in the surface environment we haven't for a long time thought of co2 as being a contaminant but that's really what it is Um, and you know to address these problems we need relatively simple solutions but they need to be implemented at scale and so um, my folks were always focused on you know and had an interest in in basic science but um my mom in particular she was a, a clinical um, vaccinologist and so she was really interested in making sure that those fundamental insights get t- translated to uh problem solving and real solutions and uh, and so that's that's kind of a hard hard line to toe as an academic right because the the emphasis and the Um, The focus of academic institutions is typically on uh, fundamental or basic research, but um, really if we want to translate our findings to real-world implementation, we need to be focusing on problem-solving.
0: Speaking of real-world implementation, can you give us an overview of Travertine and your role at the organization?
1: Absolutely. So um, Travertine is a new company founded in January of 2022, uh, with the goal of our tagline is reengineering chemical production for carbon dioxide removal. And what we mean by that is we want to be producing the world's most used uh, inorganic chemicals in a way that's uh, carbon dioxide negative uh, to help, first of all, address uh, waste production. And then second of all, hopefully do carbon dioxide removal and sequestration at large scales. Um, And so Travertine was um, founded based on some proof of concept research that we did in my lab at UC Berkeley. And I decided to leave that academic position to start uh, this company because um, I saw kind of a gap in the proposed CDR technologies that didn't encompass uh, these kinds of approaches. Um, And the benefit in particular of the approach that we're taking is that we're producing Products other than simply carbon dioxide removal and sequestration, which means that in this kind of next decade or so where voluntary markets are relatively immature, um, we have a path to generating revenue and, and hopefully becoming profitable um, basically with, with a, a low price or perhaps even no price on carbon dioxide removal and sequestration. So we're trying to kind of subsidize CDR with the co production of commodity products that are uh, produced uh, today in ways that are more environmentally damaging. Um, And so a very high level, what travertine does is um, electrolytic sulfuric acid production. So we take sulfate wastes and we turn them back into sulfuric acid, which is the world's most used inorganic chemical. And then at the same time, we produce alkalinity or base that we use to react with carbon dioxide from the air to um, form solid carbonate minerals. And this is a way to permanently sequester CO2 in a solid phase. It's a lot like limestone. And so I know that's that's a lot. That was a lot of information, a little bit complicated. Happy to break it down further.
0: Where do you get your feedstock?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of, of uh, sources of feedstocks for um, sulfate waste. So today, the, the greatest use of sulfuric acid industrially is in phosph- phosphorus fertilizer production. And so the process of phosphorus fertilizers, which is a, a critical ingredient for industrial agriculture, is um, what's called rock phosphorus. And this is an apatite mineral that forms in deep sea environments that gets brought to the surface and then it's mined. And this rock phosphorus um, is reacted with sulfuric acid to release uh, phosphorus for fertilizers. Uh, And the product of that reaction is what's called phosphogypsum. It's a gypsum or calcium sulfate waste product. Um, And today uh, that calcium sulfate waste product is typically just put into engineered stacks and piled up, and so we have billions of tons of this waste material piled up all over the planet. Wait, so that sorry would be a,
0: to, yeah. to interrupt. Yeah. Are you saying there's just these piles of this material just laying around?
1: Absolutely, so for example, coastal Florida, in the United States there's um, a lot of uh, phosphorus production in Florida because there are phosphorite deposits there, and um, we have essentially mountains of phosphogypsum piled up on the uh, on the Florida coastline. And in fact, the highest elevation point in Florida is the top of a phosphogypsum stack. And these, these stacks are so large, you can see them easily from space. Um, and so th- this is a waste product that's maybe not, not that visible to people in the sense that you know you don't hear about it that much, but it's a, it's a massive industrial waste product that uh, we hope to be able to convert to solid carbonate minerals and permanently sequester CO2 in them and at the same time be producing sulfuric acid from them that can be subsequently used for fertilizer production. So make that process essentially eliminate that sulfate waste, use that sulfate again um, in the extractive process. Um, and similarly, uh, mining processes use very large quantities of sulfuric acid to extract vertical elements. It's called a hydrometallurgy, where you extract uh, elements with acid or aqueous acid. Um, and in that case, what's produced are sulfate salts, Um, And when magnesium sulfate salts are produced or calcium sulfate salts are produced, we can take those and um, convert them back into magnesium carbonates, calcium carbonates, and then upcycle the sulfuric acid. So instead of starting from uh, today's conventional method for producing sulfuric acid for these extracts, Extractive processes is by starting from elemental sulfur or from a sulfide, and then oxidizing that and making acid, and then generating sulfate waste. Instead of doing that very linear kind of raw resource to waste, we can make the process more uh, circular by taking the sulfate waste, uh, regenerating sulfuric acid, and then sequestering CO two and solid carbonate. So it can apply to fertilizer industry, but also in the mining industry.
0: So let's go back to the fertilizer industry for a moment these mounds of waste, are they damaging the environment?
1: That's a great question. So the key issue with these phosphogypsum wastes and why they can't be beneficially reused in many places um, is that there are radionuclides or radioactive elements that are bound in phosphorite deposits that get released during the fertilizer production process, and those uh, transfer to the phosphogypsum. And so Um, In the United States, the EPA designates these phosphogypsum stacks as what are called uh, technologically enhanced um, natural radioactive material or T-norm materials. And so they have um, small quantities of uh, radium Thorium and uranium that uh, essentially mean that they're not safe to use in drywall because gypsum is widely used in mm-hmm. drywall. So we don't want this inside, right? Uh, we don't want to be breathing the radium in, in this material. And so today, um, the EPA and and many other governments around the world have decided the safest thing to do with this waste product is just to make mountains out of it. Um, now, what we're proposing to do, um, which would obviously require deep environmental uh, review and and analysis is to convert the gypsum into a carbonate and so um, basically transform the product uh, and sequester CO2 in it. Um, Now, the carbonate product that's produced will likely contain um, quantities of the radioactive materials that were in the original waste feedstock. Um, which will essentially limit the beneficial reuses. You probably wouldn't want to use the carbonates. Again, as a an interior building material depending on uh, the potential for release of radionuclides. But there are lots of, for example, uh, outdoor um, structural concretes that can use T-norm materials. So like coal fr- fly ash, which is often used in cements, uh, is T-norm as well. Uh, but that could be used in outdoor cements safely.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, your product... Would be used perhaps as an additive to concrete.
1: That's a possibility, certainly. Um, there are option. I mean, you could, you could. I suppose you could leave a mountain of limestone and and uh, build a, a soil over it. The nice thing about limestone is that it's it can build more, generate more productive, uh, healthier soils rather than a gypsum based um, soil. So so you could either leave it there and build a soil over it, or you could uh, potentially use it as an additive for cements. Or there's even talk of for example, taking precipitated calcium carbonate and using that uh, as a source of alkalinity enhancement in the ocean, so you could dispose of it in the ocean. Also, um, so there there are different options that we're exploring.
0: So I believe I'm looking at a picture of one of these mountains on your website. Yeah. Do they? You mentioned radiation. Is I mean, is that mountain emitting radiation?
1: So it's um, the the radioactivity driver in these materials is what's called. Uh, radium and um, radium can decay to radon and if you live in Colorado um, you're aware of radon abatement systems in your basement where uh, where basically you pump air through so radon can form a gas that, that that produces ionizing radiation so this is a very very low level of radiation that's exposed excuse me that's that's generated by these materials and it decays very slowly and and you know, over time, so older PG stacks, so over the, over 30 years old or so, some of those can actually start being used as agricultural amendments because the uh, radionuclides have decayed um, to a large enough extent for this stuff to be safely used directly as an agricultural amendment. So this is very, very heavily, very carefully regulated by the United States uh, EPA and other regulatory agencies around the world. So the, the fact that there's an engineered stack does not um, present a source of uh radioactive exposure to people today. It's its basically a safe storage environment today, but it is possible that these surface stacks could be um, disturbed in, in a big storm, for example. And so it's its really important to think of kind of maybe longer term, more, more durable uh, storage solutions for these materials.
0: Well, I'm just imagining the last hurricane that came through Florida.
1: Right, yeah.
0: So these engineered stacks have been sitting there for a while. Who would pay or why would... A company pay to have them processed
1: (laughs) well because it's extremely expensive for them to be managed right so um, so these fertilizer companies have a massive liability in managing the pg stacks and in fact um it's so difficult to manage uh phosphogyps in the us because we have such stringent um for good reason stringent environmental regulations um that that we can't actually build new phosphorus fertilizer plants in the U.S., which means that eventually as our our, old plants kind of phase out, we're going to be reliant on imported phosphorus for agriculture, which is one of our kind of foundational industries in the United States. So that's um, maybe not a great long-term plan.
0: Well, as we learned this year with Ukraine and Russia.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Now, I also saw that your process can be used in mining lithium. How does it work in that application?
1: So, in that application, um, there are uh, certain types of lithium deposits that can be extracted using dilute sulfuric acid. So, there are a number of uh, there are a number of unconventional lithium deposits concentrated actually in the desert southwest of the United States that uh, can be efficiently extracted. The lithium can be efficiently taken out of the material using uh, a sulfuric acid leach, and So this is a pretty mainstream process for uh, critical element extraction. So in that case, uh, lithium containing silicate material would be leached with acid, which in turn would generate a sulfate waste stream. Many mining processes, I should say, generate sulfate waste streams. So this is nothing new. Um, the, the point... Um, that, that we're trying to kind of get across is that um, that there are options, alternatives to conventional sulfuric acid production that would kind of eliminate this sulfate waste stream that could potentially um, pose some risk to uh, ecosystems uh, in arid regions because it's, it's, you know, you can't actually dispose of sulfate. To water bodies uh, where there's no water to be found, right? And so th- they'd end up with a pile of basically sulfate salts. And so we can take those salts and upcycle them to sulfuric acid again. And at the same time, take any um, calcium, magnesium in those uh, salts and then convert them to solid carbonates. And so you do the kind of um, env- have the environmental co benefits of one, avoiding sulfate wastes, and two, um, sequestering carbon dioxide in the process of mining. and But one, one point I just want to get across here is that um, sulfate is not actually a regulated contaminant in the United States of water. It's it's not a hazardous thing, right? We have bath salts, uh, <laughs> Epsom salts, for example. You can could, you could put a lot of sulfate salts in, in your water and that's okay. It's just an issue of uh, generating a lot of salinity in the water that can have um, some detrimental impacts to surface ecosystems. And so I just want to make it clear, this is not like a hazardous contaminant necessarily, but it is something that does have environmental impacts. Um, And also the process of oxidizing sulfur is simply adding acid to the surface environment, which means that um, that in the end translates to actually more CO2 emissions.
0: Understood. Now, lithium, there's going to be a huge demand for it. And while I know you're not an expert on lithium, what are your thoughts about the requirements of mining lithium in the U.S.? and how we're perhaps going to be able to meet the demand?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So um, today, the vast majority of the world's lithium is mined in the solar deposits, the salt deposits down in South America, and also from kind of hard rock spodumene deposits that are mostly in Australia. We have some actually in the United States in the Southeast. Um, but what's been more recently discovered that they're large, unconventional, so not solar, not spodumene deposits uh, of lithium in the U.S. And in fact, um, some of the biggest lithium deposits ever discovered are these unconventional deposits. And so uh, to meet the, the, the day right, and, and actually efficiently uh, transition our energy infrastructure from fossil based to renewable energy infrastructure based, We need to be producing lithium at a much faster pace than we are currently, uh, and that means developing unconventional deposits. Um, Unconventional deposits are not typically or basically um, weren't considered economic deposits uh, for a long time because the lithium concentrations are lower than the conventional deposits. But now that we have this kind of massive supply demand imbalance, these deposits will become actually very important in making sure that we can produce enough batteries for the EV transition, both in the US and globally.
0: I think I read an article recently, and not just lithium, but I believe it said that we need to develop at least 300 more mines across the globe in order to meet the demand for the energy transition.
1: Sounds like a reasonable number. I mean, we need to uh, vastly increase our production of critical elements, not just lithium. Uh, we also need nickel, we need cobalt, uh, you name it. Uh, there is a, a recent study by the International Energy Agency uh, that basically showed that we need you know, significant multipliers. I think the range that they, that they um, published for their sustainable development scenarios were something like six to 40-fold increases in production of these elements benchmarked to today. And so the renewable energy transition is going to require mining. Um, And, uh, you know, there are definitely environmental impacts to mining. And so it behooves us to um, approach this transition from the kind of, I I think, the, the mindset of how can we Make sure that we abate as many environmental impacts as possible uh, in in the process of transitioning from fossil-based to renewable energy um, infrastructure.
0: You know, you made this journey from academia to entrepreneurship. What are some of the valuable lessons you've learned on your journey?
1: Um, great question. So I, I think the most valuable lesson that I've learned is that all of the skills that I had to develop to become an academic, um, many if not all of them are really rele- readily transferable um, to to starting a company in the sense that as an academic, you are running a research group, and so that kind of translates really nicely to running a team and um, uh, developing a plan for R and D and executing on that strategy. Um, <laughs> fundraising is a really critical part of having a productive academic lab, making sure that you can write grants and, and raise funds and uh, fundraising similarly is critical to building uh, a company uh, and then also basically transferring ideas into something that's digestible to a large number of people is a really important part of teaching right uh, and also transferable uh, to starting a company because you have to be be able to kind of articulate uh, the vision of what you're trying to accomplish and so I think I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that uh, in academia we' We're developing and honing skills that, that are really readily transferable.
0: That's great to hear. Quite often I talk to academics, really smart people, engineers, PhDs that have a project in a lab and the transition from being in a lab to quote unquote real world business is quite a tough one for them, mostly because they go from what I'm going to call, generally speaking, a controlled environment to an uncontrolled environment. What were some of the surprises for you when you transitioned into from academia into business?
1: I mean, I think, I think for me, I don't know if this was a surprise, but it's just a kind of a reset of priorities in the sense that um, the what's valued in academia are, are kind of fundamental breakthroughs and fundamental insights. And, um, you know, trying to do translational or applied research is really not highly prioritized, even if it's important research, right? Even if it's something related to, for example, carbon dioxide sequestration, um, but in industry, you know, it's totally the opposite. The question is always, what's the bottom line? And so kind of shifting my mindset from this why, 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 um, and trying to understand mechanism to how, 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 and how quickly can we implement, um, I think is probably the, the biggest shift. But, uh, but luckily, my, my husband's been in business for a long time. So I, you know, I think I was prepared for that in a way that maybe some academics aren't.
0: Now, you mentioned fundraising. How was the fundraising journey?
1: Um, so far, so good. So we founded, founded the company in, in January and, and um, by April had um, uh, funding in the door from some um, excellent uh, partners. So Grantham Environmental Trust and Clean Energy Ventures uh, funded our, our seed round. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's gone smoothly thus far. Knock on wood, I, you know, I hope that we can um, continue to, to grow quickly and scale quickly.
0: And what stage is the company in? What are you working on right now?
1: Great question. Yeah. So, um, right now, we are uh, launching from bench scale to a small pilot scale facility here in our warehouse. And at the same time, uh, in parallel, working on developing uh, engineering design for a ton of day system. So, you know. 350 to maybe 1,000 tons per year of CO2 removal and sequestration. So um, it's been really exciting to, to grow the team quickly and scale up quickly. Um, we're, we're basically um, going uh, to be turning on our, our next size up system, which is several orders of magnitude bigger than our proof of concept systems, uh, in the next couple of weeks.
0: And when do you think you'll be fully ready for commercial production?
1: Um, Obviously, it depends on um, R&D outcomes over the next uh, year or so, but uh, at this point, we're projecting that we could have a small commercial plant uh, in kind of late-stage design phase in 2025, perhaps even building a small commercial facility at that time.
0: So 2025, so I'm going to take a leap into the future, 10 years ahead, let's say 2035. If the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune, pick the publication of your choice, were to write a headline, perhaps even a small paragraph about travertine, we're here for vision setting. What would you like it
1: to read? I love that question.
0: And I'm sure you've thought about it.
1: Yeah, I I would say I would love by 2035 our headline to read travertine mineralizes megatons of carbon. Um, And then, you know, the, the subheader being something like Um, uh, co-production of of, uh, industrial chemicals is an environmental win-win.
0: You know, I love that. And specifically going back to the issue with fertilizers and phosphorus, I think we're very quickly learning. And when I say we, I mean, the general public, I'm sure people in the know know, but issues like fertilizer shortages or having access to rare earth or lithium here domestically, these are all going to be issues of National security, and I feel like you know what you're trying to do helps us create that level of safety or security that we need in order to make this transition.
1: I, I, I mean, I, that, I think that's part of our mission, and I think importantly, um, what we want to avoid is having to make environmental trade-offs in the process of production, right? So for for decades, the US has offshored mineral production, right? We import raw materials from other places that have much less stringent environmental regulations, which globally to me is uh, a loss because it means that globally, we're having greater environmental impacts than we would uh, by mining somewhere where we have stringent regulations. And so I think think this idea of of ontoing mineral production is beneficial, not just because we have uh, security of raw material resources, but also so that we can ensure that we're pioneering clean approaches to production of raw materials. I think for so long, uh, environmentalists have looked away from these industries and wanted to kind of ignore them or cast them as the villain. But I think uh, today we're in this weird catch-22 in the sense that we have to mine to avoid catastrophic global environmental change. And so we don't have the luxury of being able to look away anymore. We need to look closely at these processes and see how we can actually improve them, given um, the great deal of technological advancement we've made over the last
0: decades. You know, I so agree with you with the idea of looking away from diamonds to cobalt. If I think if we really knew how and where, I think we perhaps would have take a different approach to those items.
1: I, I couldn't agree more.
0: <laughs> so what else do you think we, are, we need on this path to net zero?
1: Um, I think I think we need to be kind of um, recommitting ourselves to developing new strategies or, or pushing forth uh, even, you know, relatively established uh, technologies um, to ensure that we can make a clean or as clean as possible a renewable energy transition. I think we need to kind of step away from, you know, to the extent possible, kind of dogmatic thinking in the sense that, you know, if it creates a waste, then it's, then it's evil. I think rather we need to be focusing on how can we use our knowledge, use our skills to minimize the global environment, environmental impact uh, that we're having so that you know our next generation, our kids and our kids' kids are gonna be inheriting a planet that's not only habitable but that's um, better uh, than the world we're living in today.
0: Here, here. Now, last question. This could be professional or personal. But if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, recommendations with the audience, what would it be?
1: Um, I would say um, <laughs> today, you know, we're, we're kind of forced in this divisive mode of, of um, industrial villains versus uh, kind of environmental heroes. And I think maybe um, being thoughtful about reflexive responses and, and thinking about the the longer term or broader implications of. of uh, of our kind of easy responses to, to, to thoughts about kind of new production of materials, for example. Um, and so really, and maybe this, this is not just in, in renewable energy transition, but just in general, um, listening more uh, and, and, and being more thoughtful and, and maybe trying to tone down the rhetoric a little bit.
0: Tone down the rhetoric and <laughs> yeah. temper the reflexive responses. I love that, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raj. I wish you all the best with Travertine and look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Likewise, that sounds great. Take care.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email. BTU at nexuspmg.com, or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger than us is a Nexus PMG production.